Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. You know, today's episode is combat stress and dealing with stress, but we have a special guest with a big brain who's here to talk about the science behind all the stuff that I talk about, whether it's stress related in combat or stress related in survival and how to deal with it. We have Justin, who is a neuroscientist. And Justin, what's your title and your, your background? Yeah, so my background is I have my PhD in neuroscience. Uh, I did my bachelor's and master's in psychology, and I currently am working in big data analytics and also really trying to get this message out of understanding where the current cutting edge neuroscience is for stress and decision making and giving it to individuals who can apply it to their daily lives. Me and Justin met on on, uh, social media, got introduced to each other a long time ago, Uh, and it took us forever to link up. His Instagram handle is at tactical neuroscience, right? N-E-U-R-O science. And that's cool because if you think I mean, nobody's really applying, nobody's really teaching any kind of neuroscience or any kind of real way to analyze, or at least in a simple way to analyze what kind of physiological or mental responses that happen to us under stress, at least at least overtly. You know, I've, I've seen in special operations, doctors come out and talk to us about uh, different things, but nobody's doing it on the commercial side of the house, the private sector. So it's a unique opportunity for us to get some good science on why this stuff happens. And me and Justin are collaborating. We're actually in San Francisco right now, and both of us are consulting for Oracle, a technology company that's a massive company that's a shark of companies. But Oracle, I mean, that's pretty impressive that Oracle is looking at uh, an SF dude, a neuroscientist, to get consulting on improving their analytics, their leadership, their management, the, the way they analyze their sales teams. And it's, it's a pretty cool, unique opportunity. So look forward to this episode and uh, we're going to dive right into it. All right. So the other day I was interviewed by a media company who's kind of like looking for the next Bear Grylls. And I hope I could be the next Bear Grylls, like the half Asian SF guy, Bear Grylls. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity. But this media company, they asked me a really good question that kind of provoked some thoughts. And they asked me, in a life-threatening situation that I've been through in real life, what was going through my mind at the time? And after the fact, how did it make me feel? And so I posted on Instagram my answer to that. And my answer was, one, you know, when you have a a stressful response to something, it's kind of like the fight or flight. You have a couple options. And if flight is your option or panic is your option, I maybe illustrated in my mind is it's the equivalent of walking off into the darkness out of the light. And that could be associated with, you know, the visual light or the visual experience or the reality of the experience and walk to the subconscious part of your head and you take a knee and you check out because whether that's fear, uh, shock, whatever it is, you don't have the training to revert back to. And so what I tell people in training, what I mentioned on this answer is, I try to stay conscious, which means I I try to stay in the fight. So I stay in the forefront of my mind where I'm talking or communicating to myself through this process and I'm staying engaged and focused because if I seize and I freeze, potentially this inaction could debilitate my effort to survive. And another thing that I talked about was how I feel afterwards. And afterwards, I feel like, hey, you know, it's, it's a reset button. You know, it's like hitting the reset button on a video game. You're starting over and you get a new chance. 
and that new chance build resiliency, this new willingness to live a fuller life. And it's a, it's an awesome experience for people who've had like these life changing experiences, whether it's a vehicle accident, you know, uh, uh, somebody afflicted with cancer and, you know, there's gotta be science behind this. And is, is there anything I'm saying that kind of ties back to any kind of scientific notation of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the fundamental things to think about with stress is there's this really uh, old idea, but it's in psychology known as the Yerkes Dodson law. And essentially what it is, is it's, it's a, just a graph, right? And so you've got your vertical axis and you've got your horizontal axis on the vertical axis is your performance, your output, right? And then on the horizontal axis, you've got your stress. Uh, in in Yerkes Dodson law, they call it arousal. But for this purposes, we're going to talk about it as stress, right? And so what happens in this graph, there's this beautiful curve, it's a normal distribution curve, if you're familiar with that. But the idea is at the lower left-hand corner of the graph, it's the points are very, very low to the horizontal axis, so it's low. And then the graph increases in the middle, goes up to a peak, and then it kind of comes down over the right-hand side. So you've got this nice sort of inverted U shape. And so stress, as stress increases along the right-hand side of the axis, what you see is a decrease in performance, right? And so that's if you're too stressed out, if you're having an overwhelmingly stressful experience, you're going to have poor performance. It's the exact same on the other side of the graph, too, or if you're groggy, you're sleepy, you're checked out, you not pay attention. Anybody who's ever fallen asleep in a lecture or a talk, you're not stressed enough to stay awake. Your performance is going to be horrible. And so that's the idea relating back to experiences where your life or death is involved is you want to make sure that you're trying to optimize your stress response under those very, very acute moments to perform at the middle part of that curve and the stress, your performance is as high as it can possibly be. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, I, I try to quantify this in training by looking at heart rates, right? And, and I know there's a and this is probably based on that curve where when you analyze people's heart rate and you look at like 70% of their maximum heart rate or maximum beats per minute, that there's an optimal beats per minute of performance in a bracket, right? There's a minimum and a maximum. And that in that bracket, if they're beyond that, they start doing stupid stuff. They, they It's indecision, shock, and they make mistakes. But if in that optimal performance... I equate the heart rate to accelerating blood flow to the eyes, to appendages, to the muscles, to be able to move faster, shoot more accurate. And I've, I've, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in shooting competitions. I've seen it in, in combat where once you start falling off, I call falling off the map, once you start falling off the map, inherently you make these mistakes. Now is one of the things that, you know, you, you, you mentioned it before we had a conversation before this podcast about, you know, train like you fight, right? That's, that's an adage that we use in special operations. Really any performance-based industry is doing it. But when you look at quantifying just the heart rate, right, which is a physical response, how do you go about inducing stress, I guess, physiologically, right? The combination of mental and physical. How do you do that? Because some people like, if you physically stress me out and you try to get me in this bracket physically, mentally, it's not going to change me. And so, you want to do both, right? You want to do physical and mental stress, not just this physical stress to replicate it. Yep, correct. And, and again, that, that goes back to the idea of training like you fight, right? So understanding that even though if you're in really good shape and you can deal with the physical stress, you want to make sure you're pushing yourself mentally and challenging yourself to be able to perform because you don't know what's going to happen in the real world when the time is, a, when the time is now to perform and you need to perform at your optimal level. You want to make sure you've prepared for that and adjusted your cognitive ability to be able to hit that peak of the curve. Now you, now you told me a good example of the stress 
hormones or the stress? Is, is it hormones or chemicals? Yeah, 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 exactly. So the, there's an axis called the hypothalamus pituitary axis, right? Whoa. Adrenal gland axis, yeah, HPA axis. So it goes through hypothalamus to your anterior pituitary, uh, and then on to your, through your bloodstream to your adrenal gland, which then produces the cortisol or an animal's corticosterone, depending on which system, which animals you're talking about. And that is then the kind of downstream effect that you feel, right? So that's what kind of kicks on all these other systems. So one of the things that you can, everybody's experienced. So it starts, it starts with cortisol. Uh, so the cortisol is one of the downstream effects. So the downstream effect of cortisol is it's what really opens up your energy supplies so that you can fight or flight. Yep. Essentially, right? So, but that that goes all the way back up into the brain too, right? So there's portions of your brain that help to control that, uh, to help to regulate that response for the HPA axis. And so one of those areas uh, is called the amygdala, right? So the amygdala people think about as the fear center of the brain, fear and or anxiety, right? And so it's the idea and the ability to regulate yourself in those fearful situations so that you're having an appropriate amygdala response that then either kicks on or kicks off your stress response, which then goes all the way downstream, back in your bloodstream, which then influences things like heart rate, respiration. So you can control that based, this amygdala response, you can control that because if, if you control it on the right side of it, it leverages performance ability. Yeah. If you get it on the wrong side of it, the left side of it, you potentially are going to get anxious. You're going to shit your pants. You're going to yeah, so start I, dry heaving. Yeah. So I think in my, in, from my perspective, both of those things would be on the too stressed. You're too stressed for that, right? So yeah. you're having an overwhelming, your amygdala, essentially the, the neural uh, firings out of your amygdala are going crazy. It's just this massive <sighs> overwhelming noise out of your amygdala. And what you want to have is the ability to train yourself to say, I'm stressed right now. To recognize it is one of the first key things to do. Say, hey, hang on. My hands are really sweaty. I'm nervous this competition. Or this is not at all like what I thought it was going to be. How can I adjust it? How can I control it? And that's where it goes back to those that idea of what, what are things that you can control, right? Which kind of rolls into the idea of context. How is the situation? Yeah, and, and you, that's an awesome... So in this active shooter course, and I don't know anything, and and he never, you know, Justin never knew me uh, when I was teaching these classes. He wasn't sitting on these classes. We had conversations prior, but one of the things that I used to teach was what I used to do in combat, which is intentionally thinking about doing something physical, like breathing. Like I would say to myself, "Hey, you're getting stressed. You're shallow breathing. Get more oxygen." You know, if it, if it was in combat, I was intentionally taking deep breaths. If it was before a shooting competition, they say, shoot already, stand by, I'd inhale. If it was a PT test, I'd start hyperventilating to get more oxygen pumped to my brain, uh, pumped to my uh, appendages to perform better. But you have to do physical things, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it's the idea, again, from my perspective, it's the idea of you have to start it by thinking about it, being del uh, deliberate and diligent and saying, I know this potentially is going to happen. Again, it's that idea of situational awareness, right? So that looks like a bad dude. I better make sure I keep an eye on that person and make sure I'm preparing myself for fight or flight. Taking a big giant breath to relax and then see what is the situation. Oh no, he just is a jerk who's gonna walk right by me. Or the opposite of you might be in the fight for your life. But preparing for that both mentally and also physically, right? Through the physiological areas of taking those deep breaths, relaxing, kind of getting yourself warmed up, loosened so that you know you can shoot appropriately and shoot proficiently um, under those really stressful situations. Yeah, that's, that's awesome because that leads right into to context what you're talking about. And, you know, I quote John Leach, who's a survival psychologist, really one of the only survival psychologists that I've actually paid attention to. He he measures through this, ac not acronym, but through this study where he does 108010, which is 
a breakdown of the population based on case studies from the last few decades, where he's analyzed people who live and people who die and why they live or die. The 10%, the bottom bracket die because they just suck. You know, they're just predisposed for whatever reason to have a bad luck. You know, they jump off the, the fourth story of the building when they could have used the stairs. They just do the wrong thing. And then the 80% is that 50-50 where they have the cognitive ability, but they don't have the training. And then the top 10% are the people who have the training. They're consciously thinking about it. They revert back to it and they action their training. Another part of that is having the training and reverting back to that experience. And so we like to use acronyms. In fact, with Oracle, we're, we're going to teach some acronyms to uh, new salespeople. Uh, that's top secret classified. Um, uh, but we like to use acronyms because when I teach people in survival to revert back to an acronym, they can keep it very simple and they can go step by step as opposed to scrambling for an answer that they might not have because they don't have the experience in that training methodology. So I, I use the acronym OPS, which is Observe, Prepare, Survive. And in the context of survival, they go through the acronym and they revert to that training. In, in the context, right, when you talk about context, what does context mean? Can you Do you have the ability to manipulate that perception of context? Absolutely. So that's, that's one of the really powerful things about being a human being, right, is we have conscious thought that we're aware of. And so when I think about context, it's the moment to moment situation that's going on around you, both inside your body and outside your body too, right? So are you feeling well? Are you sick? Do you have the flu? You know, that's kind of a contextual manipulator. Is it hot in the room that you're in? Is it cold? Are you comfortable? Are you uncomfortable? That's external. But those are things that some, some of those are things that you can control, right? So if you're in a room and it's hot, go open a window, right? Set yourself up for success. But the big thing with context is observing it, making it a conscious awareness. Like, how am I feeling right now? What are the other people that I'm around? What are they doing? What's the situation that I'm in? Uh, one of my favorite examples to use is if you've ever been in a room where somebody's about to get fired and people say you could cut the air with a knife. Yo, you yeah, can yeah. feel that. You can yep. feel the context in that room because it's emotional and it's heavy and it's present. And, you know, there's things you can do to kind of adjust, adjust how you're perceived in that environment, you know, through relaxing and breathing. Um, one of my favorite things with that example is if you don't have to be in that room, get out. <laughs> it's like, if you don't have to be there for that situation. It's like a flight, right? That's like a passive flight. Heck yeah. I mean, the door is open and you don't have to be yeah. there. Preserving life. Exactly. Preserving the situation. Exactly. So that that's, I think, one of the, the very fundamental things to understand with context is it's it's the moment-to-moment situation that you're in, making sure you're taking, taking it all in and processing it, but at the same time, too, understanding that it's a spectrum from negative all the way to positive. And whenever you have the moment or the ability for the things that you can control, you want to shift that towards the positive side of that spectrum. Well, tell me the example. You had an example of the mail order bride. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the example for context, right, is say you're out in the woods, you're picking blueberries. It's a beautiful day. Uh, there's some shade around you're in the forest and you're eating blueberries. It's delicious. And all of a sudden a bear comes out of nowhere and starts attacking you, right? Your stress response you're having in that contextual situation is the exact same physiological response as when you're going to the airport to pick up, as Mike says, your mail order bride. You're excited to meet this person, right? This is gonna be a new chapter in life and you've got sweaty palms, your body's racing with the stress hormone and it's this amazing, fun experience that you're about to have. And so that's the idea where the stress is the same physiologically, but it's the context around the situation which changes your perception of how, uh, how that situation is going to go. Dude, that's, that's an amazing thing. Cause I never realized that, you know, 
the endorphins, the chemicals, the cortisol, the adrenaline, all that stuff is the same no matter what, what. It's the context that changes that. And, you know, we just ran that assessment course in New Orleans. And inshallah, I always say, is if we can get Justin to uh, Northern California, we're going to get him there for that next assessment course that we have on the calendar. It's May uh, 26th in Brentwood, California. And we're going to have him there as the kind of like the psych neuroscientist on deck to be able to analyze, have conversations with the guys and get some analytics, get some data points for future research. And one of the things on this last assessment course that we went through with me, me and Kurt and a good buddy of ours, Shane in New Orleans, is I was teaching them mindset while I was smoking them. And that's something that I've never done before because I've taught it in podcasts, I've taught it in articles and whatever. And then they take that information, they try to apply it, but I've never given them the tools as they're suffering. And what I noticed is, for example, I was having them do the overhead clap, which if anybody's done the overhead clap, it's really simple until it's not, until you're fatigued. And then clapping your hands over your head becomes this, this huge undertaking and it breaks your body down, it's, which obviously breaking down your physical body means your mental state is going to start to deteriorate. And so they start feeling sorry for themselves. And I start telling them to go to their happy place, to subconsciously go back into their mind, sit on the couch, observe as a passive observer what's taking place, but to disconnect them from the physical pain that they're experiencing. And another thing I do is I give them stories. I say, you know, I talk to them about Michael Murphy and I was there in Afghanistan when Mike Murphy was killed and I was on the QRF and have a, a more intimate experience with that. And so I was telling them the story of Mike Murphy and how he was a hero and how he died and all the pain and suffering that they're experiencing in this one moment in the United States under peaceful conditions is nothing compared to Mike Murphy's family, to his team, to him in that situation. And then all of a sudden I could see these guys getting resilient. Their arms all of a sudden picked up and they tapped into this, this will and resiliency and they got stronger. And mentally, you could see them build this resiliency. Is there some kind of science behind that? That's what's taking place in the, in the, in the form of context? Absolutely. So I, I think in the form of context, one of the things that really controls context is how you're behaving or how you're perceiving emotions, right? And so there's really strong evidence to show that the more emotional something is, the better that you learn it, right? So going back to the example of the bear in the woods, you will remember exactly where that berry patch is for the rest of your life if you get attacked by a bear there once. And so, so wait, attaching a emotion to an experience is how you remember, right? It gets scarred in your brain forever? Absolutely. Holy shit. Increases synaptic plasticity, as we say in neuroscience, right? You, you make those connections stronger the more emotion that you push into whatever you're trying to learn. What's some example of the emotions that you would put into it? Like, like, oh shit, I'm going to die. Oh shit, I'm going to die. Or also with Mike Murphy, like thinking about his family, especially when you're trying to learn something that could help save yourself, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a powerful moment where when you connect with an individual, either through a story or through a, a personal bond, like when you're going through an assessment, those are your brothers for life. You can call them anytime and they will help you out with whatever you need because you've got that emotional connection of going through the suck together. Oh, that's interesting. And, and is that part of the reason why you remember those instances? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the brain is structured, right? Kind of like a lollipop or a Tootsie Pop where you've got the handle that you hold on to, kind of the white stick. That's your spinal cord, right? goes up to the very part of your brain that's you know, very important for breathing. And then you've got kind of the... I like this analogy. I like candy analogies. <laughs> yeah, candy analogies. Tootsie Rolls. The Tootsie Rolls, yeah. 
this is not mine. I'm borrowing from somebody. I wish I could credit that because I don't remember who told it to me. We're going to trademark. It's ours. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's through Pops. Yeah. Sponsored. Uh, so you've got the handle that you hold onto. That's the white stick, right? So that's your spinal cord going up into the very, you know, kind of fundamental pons area of your brain. And then on top of that sits that kind of gummy, gooey center area, the, the nougat part, right? And that is your emotional part of your brain, your limbic system. And then sitting on top of that is your cortex. And your cortex does things like executive function, has all these, you know, really uh, more advanced kind of things that go on, kind of what we think about or I think about as kind of more conscious thought, right? So the idea is to take the way of understanding context and push it to the emotional level. And so the more emotions you can push into what you're trying to learn, will increase how you're able to remember it and recall it later. The other fun thing to think about with the brain is it's all interconnected. You're using all of it all the time, right? There's no there's no 10% that's just on at one point. I mean, if your brain is not functioning where it's essentially always on or at least at a uh, humming along neutral, like the engine's on running level, then you're not doing very well in life, meaning you're probably in a coma. Your emotions are always present in the background, but when you bring them to the foreground, right? So when you're telling that story about Mike Murphy and you say, hey guys, let me tell you the story about Murphy and the suffering that you're going through. And you can share that experience kind of, even though it's past with what these guys are going through now, that helps them to kind of build those muscle memories to build what they're going through. And as you say, kind of gives them that resolve or that extra strength to do the task. That's, that's, so that's interesting. So it's, it's, you know, I've always heard that teaching through a story, right. Is one of the best ways to teach because is it because it's emotionally based? Yeah, absolutely. And the fun thing, the fun thing in the sense with emotions is that they are extremely powerful and you don't always recognize that you're making these memories. And so one of, one of the examples I like to use is whenever you go back home to the place where you grew up and you walk in the door and you haven't been there in a while, there's that smell that hits you and you know that you're home, right? And smell is this powerful part because the olfactory bulbs that are, you know, the part of your brain that helps to process scent sits right behind your nose. So it's really close to your brain. And so it's this really powerful part of your limbic and emotional cortex, uh, emotional you know, limbic system sits right there close. And so, you know, when you drive by with your windows down, it's a nice day in the springtime and the dirt's fresh. It's been a fresh rain. It's about to be planting season, you know, in the middle of America. That brings me back, right? That brings me back to my childhood when I was working on our family farm. And it's this really strong, like flashback type of moment for me. And it's all caused by that smell because it's this limbic system type of memory that's been created. So you, you the goal is to get to the center of that Tootsie Pop. Absolutely. Because once you get to the center of the nudity part, it's emotionally connected, but it's going through that higher cognitive yeah. portion of your brain. But connecting those completely yeah. is, is where you need to be. At. Exactly. And let's talk about some things that I've experienced and, and see what the science is. My, I remember my first gunfight. It wasn't even a gunfight. It was a, we got rocketed in Afghanistan by 107 millimeter rockets, which in, it, in itself is like one of the scariest experiences in life because a 107 that impacts, I think the, I want to say the kill radius is like a hundred meters. Wow. So if it impacts and you're within a hundred meters, you're going to catch shrapnel that's going to kill you or, you know, you're going to get severely injured. And they started rocketing us and we identified what's called the poo site. <laughs> So for some reason, poo always comes up in my conversations lately, but this point of origin poo, point of origin. And so we identified the poo and I was the 18 Bravo. So I was in charge of a tactical plan, the base defense plan. And so I got on top of a 50 cal, a Ma Deuce with an M2 Browning machine gun. And I start going to work on this poo site. And after it was all said and done, it wasn't this glamorous thing. You know, I, you know, I wasn't Audie Murphy. It was just, it was a gunfight. After it was done, 
I remember being in the talk, the tactical operations center and communicating to my team sergeant. And then it just occurred to me that I hadn't had ear protection on the entire time, but I wasn't deaf. And I've heard of these things, you know, I've heard it in Grossman's book uh, on killing and on combat, where you have people have auditory exclusion, where things happen, I guess, physiologically, more physically to preserve life. And what are some things that happen under stress to preserve life that can be counterproductive in that type of situation? Because I've, you know, I've taught in these active shooter scenarios, like, hey, you know, having auditory exclusion might be cool in a gunfight because you could hear afterwards. But if you're like a ninja trying to creep through an area and you're not able to use your senses or you have less blood flowing through your hands and you need to use your fingers uh, to be able to manipulate a uh, firearm, that's counterproductive, obviously, to survival. So is there a science behind what's happening and what's counterproductive to like our modern day survival? Absolutely. So the other way to think about things is we are products of our past environments, right? So the evolutionary mm-hmm. development of where we are today is based on how we were living 10,000 years ago. And so one of my favorite examples is I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon. And when somebody comes into the emergency room and they say, I had this horrible experience, you know, my, my baby fell. They drop their, their infant child, you know, something happens where their, their, their kid falls. The first thing he asks them and he says, hey, how, uh, how high off the ground was the kid? And if the mom or dad says, oh, you know, about waist high or, or less, he goes, yep, it should be fine. Meaning evolutionarily, kids, essentially toddlers are pliable enough so that if they fall from your hip level down, they bounce right back. So anybody who has kids has had that moment where like they hit the ground, they hit the deck and you think, "Ooh, that's going to, you know, they're going to be crying, uh, not very happy. And then they pop up and they're still laughing and giggling. It's that idea where evolutionarily we've been through enough of these falls to where the individuals that fall from, you know, at a young age, fall from hip height or below are okay. It's the same thing too with, as humans, we are built to take trauma at the speed of running. So anything past running speed, when you hit a tree at full speed in a bicycle, we're not built for that kind of trauma. We're built to be as running as fast as you can and fly into a tree and our bones essentially will not break in that kind of situation. So the, the mental aspects of it, the stress, kind of how we deal with modern day life is perhaps not how we're best suited, but we're definitely getting better as we go over time. So we're definitely evolving in that, in that sense. I, I think so. And, and it's, we're at a very pinnacle point in history because we have more information, more stimuli coming at us in a different way than we have ever before, right? So many of our relationships are now online and digital. We're no longer sitting around a campfire after a day of hunting with your buddies and telling war stories by the campfire before you go to bed. It, it's occurred to me that when you're saying that, I was thinking about my like 90 foot, I was listening to Tim Ferriss. I'll give Tim Ferriss the credit for this because in his interview on his podcast, he was talking to a former Navy intelligence officer who used to work for Joint Special Operations Command. And he was talking about 90 foot fast ropes, which I've done. And a 90 foot fast rope, if you fall off the rope, you, you'll die. You know, you start at telephone pole level, we call it, you know, 35 feet. And if you, if you fall in your full battle rattle, full kit, you're probably going to get severely injured with a, with a statistical higher probability of actually dying. Well, at 90 feet, it's almost guaranteed. You're going to break your neck. Terminal. You're, yeah, you're, you're hitting terminal velocity. You're turning up and you're probably landing on your neck and you're probably going to get killed. Well, when you go out on a rope and you don't have a lanyard, there's no safety mechanisms. You're committing your body and you're putting literally your life in your hands. 
I talk about this in free fall. I talk about this in gunfights. It's almost like it's you're you're going through a training sequence that you can almost imagine that you would watch on TV. And as you're watching this take place, you're just you're mechanical. You're just in this mechanical response where you're reacting based off the training that you had. You're repeating this muscle memory and you are disconnected from this conscious thought of thinking about the bad because that would impede your ability to survive. If for an instance, you hesitate or you become unclear about your objective or your agenda, you potentially are going to lose focus and make a mistake. So as we evolve, it's almost like I've done this so often that there is no adrenaline. There is no response physiologically. I just do it. And so my body's just coming down our fast rope. And I remember, you know, whether it was past relationships, my mom or whoever saying to me that you're an adrenaline junkie. And it occurred to me, especially in special operations, that I don't really get a lot of adrenaline from combat. From I mean, people ask me, why do I drink monsters and chug the hell out of them? Literally, I do it to jack up my heart rate so I can perform better when I'm shooting, when I'm doing these different kinds of things, because I've exhausted my adrenal glands and I get nothing from it. I literally have been with friends where we're going, we're, we're staged or we're about to hit the X of a, of a terrorist safe house and we have to jack each other up because it's the new normal. Yeah. It's because we want that performance or we're so complacent on an aircraft because it's almost like we're sleeping. Every special operations guy I know that goes into a situation like whether it's infilling on an X, like fast roping onto a bad guy's uh, safe house, doing a military free fall jump, driving in a vehicle about to uh, get into a gunfight. Everybody's almost like they're on Benadryl. They're all like shut down. And maybe it's like a training mechanism, but we're all so calm. And I don't know if that's something that we've trained ourselves to do, but it's just, it's bizarre to me, man. And so the science plan, this is a little less clear. So I'm going to step outside of the, the hard science fact and kind of do some speculation. But I think based on my experience, this is where I think it's going or the, the potential mechanisms. Maybe somebody can comment in if they have an exact mechanism uh, of, you know, what, what's causing this. But from my perspective, I think that's fascinating because you hear that in all sorts of different uh, walks of life that do extremely stressful things, right? And it's this moment where because you've had the training, because you've done it before, your body knows what it's about to happen, right? And you know consciously, like, this, it's about to get real. And I know that my life's going to be in line. I need to prepare myself. And your body essentially goes into that pre, you know, hyper state of, you know, heart rate accelerated, bullets going both ways kind of moment. And so to do that, it, it, you go into this really relaxed kind of just, you could fall asleep in this part, right? So a lot of people talk about when they're on the helicopters and they're heading out and they're going to the X, some people take naps, take a second, shut down the system, get ready to rock and roll. Whatever timeline is the time to wake up, do your last checks. They come back like, all right. Here we go. And then they slowly ramp back up and they go from the left-hand side of that stress curve. And they slowly ramp back up more towards the middle where the performance is going to be optimal. And so it's that idea where the more you do it, the more it becomes normal. Is that an optimization thing that that maybe phys- like mentally and physically that we're doing without even recognizing it? I would I would say yes. Again, without, you know, it's hardcore science behind it, but my, that, it, it fits really well with exactly what we're talking about, right? With, if you know you're going to go into a stressful situation, how do you prepare for that? Because it's easier to go up in stress than it is to bring yourself back down, right? And so once you go past that center point of performance, you're not trying to calm yourself down, which takes a lot of work. But to get geared up, all you got to do is look around and be like, yup, 
we're about to go into it. Here we go, right? It's kind of like the, it's like a movie trailer where the, you know, the Transformers, and you're like, I'm getting amped right now. And it's easier to go up the curve than it is to kind of pull yourself back down. It It makes a lot of sense to me where, especially if you've, you've gone through many, many iterations of training, many different exposures to that level of stress, and also just the experience of doing it. And you're with a very select group of individuals, right? You know, I think, you know, it, it reminds me of the equivalent of Olympic athletes before, or just athletes, period, you know, performance-based athletes, and they're under a lot of pressure and they got headphones on, right? Yep. Now, now it's Dre, Beats, or whatever, headphones, and they're listening to music and it's right before game time and they're pumping themselves up. You know, I've been in a, a few pretty elite special operations units and every single one of them, every single one of them, I've literally been in, in helicopters going to fast rope on a real life objective and had to wake people up or the cell leader will get on the radio like, hey, ladies, wake up. It's time to go to work. And everybody just wakes up and then we optimally perform. And that makes me think like maybe it's not we're onto something, but we're recognizing it for the first time that we do do this inherently and, and SWAT guys do it. Really anybody who's in danger do it. Parachutists do it. Skydivers do it. Yep. They'll be inside the aircraft before a wingsuit jump and they'll be sleeping. Mm-hmm. And then they wake up and it's like time to let's go. It's almost like a preservation thing, isn't it? I, I think it's the it's the preservation of you want to make sure you're not expending your energy that you want to be expending during the firefight before you get to the firefight. Does that make sense? It does. And that you know what just occurred to me too is I remember in those instances where you do have and admit, you, you'll definitely know the science behind this. I don't know what it, what it is. But when you get into a gunfight, and it could be a five-minute gunfight, and your adrenaline just kicks off, you feel exhausted. It's it's like you've been in a fight for your life, and it's a five-minute gunfight. And, and I think about, uh, you know, I think about Black Hawk Down, and I got some buddies who were in Somalia when that happened. But this ongoing fight, and then afterwards, they're super exhausted, like burned out. What is, what is the science behind that? Yeah, so that's essentially... When, when it's going through, especially when it's a short duration, right? The idea is that you are dumping your system with the stress hormones required to stay alive. And you're running, if you think about it kind of in the, in the analogy of a car, you're running into the red. You're going full RPMs for that five minutes. And then when it switches off and it's time to relax, your body is literally physically exhausted. Your brain is completely essentially wiped out. And a lot of people get really, really thirsty, right? That's one of the side effects too of having a massive adrenaline Adrenaline dump is you get this intense thirst and so who, who doesn't get thirsty after adrenaline dump? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the best way to be thirsty. Yeah. Uh, but but it, there really is this this idea of you know you've completely run your system to the red, and what's changed kind of evolutionarily, right? Is you maybe would do that a handful of times in your life ten thousand years ago, right? The, the saber-toothed tiger. Exactly. He comes charging at you, you throw the spear, and then yeah. you hit him before he gets to you. Exactly. And that's the idea that now, kind of where we are and how we have technology, we're having individuals like yourself that do that experience often or very often, right? And so that's where we're not really set up physiologically or evolutionarily to do that. And you know, that's sort of where when the, the system works really well and you can you can push it, you can train it, you can train your brain, you can train your body to do certain things, but at some point, everything breaks, right? And so when you push things past that point where, uh, you know, in neuroscience, we call it, you know, emotional dysregulation or, you know, neural dysregulation where there's no more, there should be an off switch, but the off switch is broken. So that system just keeps running at RPMs that are super out of control. And that's where you start to see, you know, things come up like PTSD or, you know, emotional 
emotional issues or behavioral issues where the off switches that would be there normally are essentially broken. Ooh, that's, you know, that's a perfect way to end this episode because next episode, which we'll probably record tomorrow, which is part two of this. I mean, we could do like a hundred parts and I'd be enthralled with this because it's, it's so interesting to learn this stuff as we'll talk about that PTSD of like the after effects of that. Uh, I'll end off with a story. I, I, you know, all this stuff makes me start thinking, you know, have flashbacks of all this stuff in a good way. I, I was in Afghanistan and it was my last combat operation and we were about to fly home and we had to do a daytime vehicle interdiction. And instead of interdicting the vehicle, we decided to go kinetic. So we decided to destroy the vehicles in place. Before we could destroy them, they wanted up getting out of the vehicle and setting up a Dishka machine gun, a 12.7 millimeter machine gun, an anti-aircraft machine gun designed to take down helicopters as I was in. And I was flying in a slow, I won't name the air helicopter, but it was a slow flying helicopter. And I was sitting on the back of the ramp or near the ramp on a seat. And the guy across from me had his night vision down. I had my night vision down. And I saw these flashes and I looked out the back of the ramp and I saw tracer rounds going up between the two aircraft, the one behind us and our helicopter. And it took my mind a second to register, but I realized that we were getting shot at from the ground. I imagined that, oh, you know, the helicopter, the attack helicopter that was with us shot at that vehicle and that it ricocheted up. And that so I was trying to rationalize what was taking place, but the reality was we were getting shot at and we almost got shot down. And so as this happened, I remember getting on the radio because the guy across from me was my boss and he didn't see what happened. And I said to him, I said, Hey, we just got shot at with anti-aircraft fire. And so he said, Oh shit. So he said, Hey, crew chief, cause he was hooked up to comms with the helicopter. So, Hey, crew chief, uh, we're getting shot at by anti-aircraft fire. And so this is like 10 second lull. And then like five seconds later, we do this slow, almost annoying bank of this slow helicopter. I'm like, what we don't even need to bank. Like, why are we even doing this? You know, long story short, we wound up killing all the bad guys on the ground. We got through it. it. But it occurred to me that at that moment, even when I was on the brink of potentially getting killed, that I didn't have that fear response at me anymore. And I, I see there's a hundred stories I got from those kind of moments where we're getting shot at and we're just standing around with night vision, just like laughing and joking. And we're not taking what's happening serious. And so we have this huge complacency that's taking place. It's almost like you evolve to be this warrior, this badass, and then you get to the, the point where it's so comfortable and you're so complacent that you need a reset. You need something dramatic to happen. What, what is that? What is, what's taking place? Yeah, you've, you've tr- essentially gone to the place where you've trained so that the normal and you've been exposed to the experience where the normal is putting your life on the line every time. So those, what would be for anybody who's not in that situation, a near-death experience Near-death experience is now your new norm. Your new normal. Is that a receptor? Is there something there, like uh, yeah. Abdullah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't say it's anything in particular, right? Because there's many, many systems inside the brain, and they all work in conjunction with one another, right? But it's the idea that that context, which should be scary, you've now made so it's not that scary. Your amygdala is not firing as much as it should be. Potentially decreases your performance. Ooh, that's crazy. So it's almost. It's like uh, Pulp Fiction, man. It's just like this this weird reverse of things. And Benjamin Button. It's yeah. Benjamin Button yeah. reverse. This is fascinating stuff, guys. And if you're looking forward to this part two, you're one and the same because I'm excited about part two already. And, and we haven't even talked about it, but it's going to be, I know it's going to be awesome because I'm actually learning a lot 
about all the things that you know I thought were really part of something. I didn't even know what we were doing. We're just kind of doing it and getting through it. Justin, I appreciate you coming on today and taking the time in this hotel room with me. <laughs> it's opulent gold encrusted hotel room. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Pearl's loving it too. She's <laughs> she's loving the rubs. Um, so if you guys want to check out Justin, please check him out on Instagram and Facebook. It's Tactical Neuroscience on Instagram. Is What's the Facebook handle? Uh, same thing, Tactical Neuroscience. Tactical Neuroscience. Yep. There's going to be some amazing things coming from Justin, coming from Phil Craft, coming from me in the future about this stuff because we kind of want to narrow this whole path down to give you guys the tools necessary and understanding like no shit what's happening and taking place in your mind and in your body. So you guys can check me out at Philcraft Survival and at Soft Survivor on Instagram, on Philcraft uh, Survival on Facebook, and check us out on our website at philcraftsurvival.com. Justin, you'll say goodbye. You got anything to say? Parting words? Thank you very much for the opportunity. This is amazing and it's exciting to be able to push this information out to those individuals who can utilize it to improve their lives. Awesome, man. Uh, we'll see you guys in part two. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.